Coming up on Philosophy Talk. The radical market. Solutions for a gilded age. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? Cologne? No. Opportunity. No. Money. Okay. We smell money. Markets have given us growing inequality, a rise in populism, and decay of democracy. So we should limit the market through regulation. But what if instead of shrinking the market, we expanded it? You're suggesting that we haven't let markets go far enough? That's right. You can buy anything in this country, man. Anything you can think of. You can probably buy a left nostril inhaler if you look around long enough. With your state motto on it. Is inequality an inevitable product to the market? Our guest is Glenn Weil, co-author of Radical Market, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Business as usual going on. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Big plywood up there. Business as usual. Hi, I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. Is the market the key to freedom and prosperity? Don't markets always lead to economic inequality? Is it possible to make markets work better for everyone? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken and I teach philosophy. Our topic today, radical markets. Solutions for a new gilded age? Well, we do live in a gilded age, an age with rampant inequality, the rich getting richer, and stagnation for the rest of us. Well, so that's why we're asking the question today, is whether markets, so-called radical markets, can cure the ills of this new Gilded Age. How can markets possibly be the cure, Ken? Markets are what got us into the problem. Oh, come on. Deborah, markets are cool. Markets have given us everything from iPhones and autos to skyscrapers and airlines. Yeah, but they've also concentrated wealth in the hands of the few. And don't even get me started on some of their external effects like pollution and climate change. Ken, you're romanticizing the market. Well, you want the government to be in control? Not me, Deborah. I'll take the decentralized distributed power of free markets over the concentrated power of the command economy any day of the week. Decentralized power? What are you talking about? Economic power is highly concentrated today. But instead of being concentrated in the hands of the state, it's concentrated in the hands of a few huge multinational corporations. They're just like the robber barons of old, except they go further. They control everything, including our information. Look, Deborah, I'm going to admit that there's too much power in the hands of corporations. I'm with you there. But that's not really the fault of markets per se. Of course it is. We rely on the market way too much. No, no, we don't rely on markets nearly enough. You want to give even more power to the market? Yeah, I do. I do. Because that's the only answer to the concentration of economic power that you and I both lament. We have to break up the corporations. That way we'll get more comp 
competition, less concentration of wealth, and we'll let the market operate more freely. Ken, I don't think you understand the true logic of capitalism. The true logic of capitalism? Oh, Deborah, that's so fancy. What are you talking about? The fact that capitalist competition necessarily leads to monopolies. Oh, come on. Look, capitalism is all about economic efficiency. And after all, monopolies can be ruthlessly efficient. Oh, come on. Monopolies mean less competition, higher prices, less choice. How in the world is that efficient? Well, look, before the Depression, there were something like 100, maybe 200 American car companies. The market decided it could produce more cars more cheaply with just the big three. No, look, 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 Deborah, you're getting me wrong. I'm not saying that the unfettered market is all that we need. We also need things like, you know, antitrust laws. I'm sure you're a fan of antitrust laws. Ah, so, Ken, now it seems you want to have your market cake and eat it, too. Well, well, if you're accusing me of wanting markets to be at least lightly regulated against the concentration of wealth, uh, yeah, I plead guilty to that. Okay, but let's take this a bit further. Let's think about labor unions. Okay. Do you object to them? No, of course not. I, didn't you know? I, I grew up in a labor household. I love labor unions. Okay. But labor unions are a form of monopoly, a form of monopoly that helps restrain concentrated corporate power. Yeah, get, so monopoly is not always the problem. Yeah, I get what you're trying to do to me. You're trying to do this Socratic thing. You're trying to get me to make more and more concessions to the importance of non-market forces. And then presto changers, you're going to get me on the side of the state or something. But no, no, no. I'm not going to go there. And let's not lose sight of the fundamental point. Uh, what is that? It's at bottom. Look, you got two choices, Deborah. Either the market's going to allocate things or the government's going to do it. And given the choice between the two, I'll take the market over the government almost any day of the week. Look, governments can focus on fairness, justice, and the common good. Markets don't care about that. That's <laughs> not their business. Haven't you read your Adam Smith where you don't like the invisible hand and all that jazz? You know, the invisible hand is sometimes an iron fist, Ken. Think about how automation has displaced unskilled labor and decimated whole communities. Look at the gig economy. What do you have against the gig economy? The gig economy is cool. It lets everyone work as much as they want, whenever they want. I, I call that freedom. You got something against freedom? Atomized workers struggling to make a living wage isn't freedom. Look, Deborah. I'm going to admit there's lots to think about here, and I'm going to grant there aren't any obvious answers. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, to explore the surprisingly radical origins of the free market. She files this report. What if I told you free markets used to be a cause of the left? Free market thinking begins in the 17th century. This is Elizabeth Anderson with the University of Michigan, and we're using the classical definition of the left as egalitarian and the right as authoritarian. They were objecting to domination by the rich who were backed up by the state. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. How'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. You already have explorers going off, colonies are being established, and really big money can be made on international trade. But there was no pretense of free markets at this time. The aristocrats controlled the state and the economy. It's good to be the king. They were one team. 
the state would award a monopoly in candle making to one manufacturer and a monopoly in trade in wool to another. Really, the state rigged the rules of property in favor of really rich people. So dissenters began to emerge, and they were coming from this egalitarian, democratic, liberal way of thinking. I will bring the law within the reach of every common man. This nation will prosper. The small manufacturers wanted in on those opportunities and not have them just monopolized by favorites of the state. Their idea was free markets let us be our own bosses and we can run our businesses the way we please. In other words, free markets make us free, free to be self-employed. Because the rigged markets, they don't just lock regular workers out of the action. It means that in order to support themselves, they'd have to work for the aristocrats. The vast majority of workers would have a boss and the bulk of revenues would go to their employer with them only earning a wage. These free marketeers, they weren't just articulating their own self-interest, they developed an entire ideology. They argued that, yes, these big monopolies do benefit from economies of scale, but self-employed workers will always be better because they have the incentive of getting to keep what they earn. This is Adam Smith, Tom Paine, and all the way up to Abraham Lincoln. But what these guys didn't predict is how dramatically the world was about to change. Quit stalling, get back to work. Attention, foreman. Double on bench five. Check on the nut tightener. Nut coming through loose on bench five. Attention, foreman. The Industrial Revolution, and especially the machine age, wiped out self-employed enterprises. And so we get a fundamental change of reality in the 19th century. So today, when people extol free markets, they may still mean no state-enforced monopolies, level the playing field. But the rhetoric is also used to oppose a bunch of things that weren't in play when free marketeers got started. Things like regulations, organized labor, and taxing business. This old rhetoric that markets will make you free, which seemed pretty plausible before the Industrial Revolution, conservatives just continued to utter the same words, forgetting that the original premise of that argument was that it would make them free of their bosses. Elizabeth Anderson argues that the freedom on offer by contemporary free marketeers now has nothing to do with work. It's about freedom as a consumer. Because of Obamacare, I am now stuck with a plan that doesn't work for me. My choice was taken away from me. School choice is a way governments can give parents back their education tax dollars to choose whatever educational options they think best fit their kids. But today's focus on consumers ignores the realities that people have at work. It's very rare for conservative rhetoric to even consider the abuses workers face at work. And when they do, the standard argument that they give is, if you don't like it, you're free to quit. That's a pretty limited definition of freedom. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beal. And thanks for that tour of the evolution of the idea of free market from radical idea to conservative dogma, Eliza. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Deborah Satz. And today, our topic is the role of markets in creating a better society. We're joined now by Glenn Weil. He's a researcher at Microsoft and a visiting senior scholar in economics at Yale. 
and he's co-author with Eric Posner of the new book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a New Society. Glenn, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Great to be talking with you, Ken and Deborah. So, Glenn, uh, thanks for joining. I, I find your book fascinating, but I want to know how you first got interested in rethinking kind of root and branch, the very idea of how markets work. Summer after I graduated from college, I spent what I thought at the time was the most unproductive summer of my life, which was in Rio de Janeiro. But, you know, things come back in unpredictable ways, obviously, and the seeing Rio, seeing all the inequality, seeing the terrible ways in which the slums there work, uh, it really changed my perspective and it inspired my wife's work. She's a Latin American political scientist and it inspired me to think about the ways that markets can work and not work. That's a kind of an interesting beginning that you were prompted by thinking about inequality. But you might have heard in the opening section, Ken and I went back and forth along some pretty traditional lines with Ken arguing in favor of free markets and my pushing back with collective solutions. So where do you stand on this? Who's right? Um, I think I see it a bit differently than both of you, and very much related to the segment that you did. I think we've lost track of what free markets are really about, about freeing people from the oppression of centralized authority, and that the state versus the market is the wrong way to think about things. States can be sources of concentrated authority. Corporations can be sources of concentrated authority. And we have to constantly be changing our social institutions to break up those concentrations of power, whether they come from property, from politicians oppressing people, from employers, all of these. So, Glenn, I love the way you're thinking outside the box, but aren't sometimes concentrations of power when we, the people, do things together? Isn't that a good thing? Do we want to break up all kinds of collective decision-making? Concentrated uh, power, in my mind, is not what happens when we make decisions together in a democracy. Each of us in a democracy has an equal share of a broader decision. Concentrated power comes when we delegate a lot of that democratic power to, say, a judge for an extended period of time to decide on the most controversial social issues that we should really be engaging with as citizens. It comes when, rather than each of us having the freedom to choose a variety of different occupations, we get stuck with a single employer, or when we give a lot of social property to a single landowner uh, denying us. So, so uh, I, I, there's a lot beneath the surface of what you just said, and we're going to have to dig into it in our, our next segment. I know there's a complicated theory that's behind what you just said, but we'll hold off just for a little bit. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the role of markets in making a better society. Our guest is Glenn Weil, co-author of the fascinating new book, Radical Markets. How can markets be a solution to the problems of stagnation and inequality? Doesn't the market just produce stagnation and inequality? Monopolies, inequality, and radical markets. Plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Some for the little lady, some for the little lady, some for the little lady, ooh, three, four dollars. We got a 
year-end clearance. We got our white sale and our smoke-damaged furniture. You can drive it away today. Step right up to a new radical marketplace where things are always for sale. I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and we're thinking today about the radical potential of markets. Our guest is Glenn Weil. He's an economist and a researcher at Microsoft and the author of the new book, Radical Markets, A Brooding Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. So, Glenn, your book is complicated, but here's one idea I got from your, is that all of our property should be available for others to buy, like my house. It's not on the market, but it should be basically always on the market for others to buy at almost any time. But what if I don't want to sell my house right now? So what's up with all this? So if you don't want to sell your house right now, our system has you setting a price that you determine and paying a tax on that. And because there would be a tax on all property and everyone would get the benefits of all property, um, most families would receive about $24,000 a year, and it would cost about $1,500 to pay the tax at current prices. Even if you increase the price by 10 times, you'd still receive on net about $10,000 as a social dividend. So I don't think any ordinary citizen would have trouble uh, keeping others away by over, overpricing their property. But on the other hand, the wealthy who hold so much and keep it away from the rest of us would have to compensate everyone for that. So this is like a kind of, it's like my house is always on the auction block, right? Is it, tell me more, Tell but, me the basic but system. But you choose your own price. I choose my own price. But Wait, somebody might come and buy it at the price I choose. So absolutely. what if I don't want to sell? So I just... I just want to stay rooted in my community, and honestly, I can't. You know, I can't afford to keep all comers away. If I put it on the market, you know, it would get outbid. But I'm rooted in my community. I send my kids to school here. I um, have neighbors with that I'm, you know, invested in. I'm invested in the local community. What do I do? So. Most Americans of reasonable means don't own their houses outright. Very, very few do. Most are either renting or they have a significant mortgage, and yeah. they're constantly mm -hmm. at risk of falling underwater, being foreclosed upon, um, being evicted from their rented housing when the rent increases, uh, facing natural disasters. No one has perfect security. In our society, the way to get security is through wealth, and the wealthy have far more security than the poor. What our system does is it taxes the way in which the wealthy achieve their security by hoarding resources away from the rest of us, and it redistributes it to every citizen so everyone can afford the amount of security and stability they want. Okay, okay, again, this is a complicated idea. I think I get it. I don't know what I think about it, but I think I get the idea. But I'm, I'm, because you're talking about most Americans, and I have to admit something. I live in the Bay Area, and I own a house in the Bay Area, and so I'm really one of the fortunate ones. I bought this house for uh, what seemed like a lot of money then, but all I did was hold on to <laughs> it, and it's worth a whole lot more. I mean, it's it's an obscene amount of money, right? And uh, I don't want to sell it because I think it's going to. Are you accusing me of being a hoarder? It sounds like you are. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I have a question though about that. So I, I'm. I think this is a gr you know really interesting idea. You're bringing back an old idea of uh, Henry George's. 
in some form about, you know, we own land and it grows more valuable, you know, and we don't do anything to it. And so why should we deserve the benefits um, that just we were lucky? But not all property is like this. So what do you say to the person who says, but look, I worked on, you know, I built this company or I built, you know, it's my skill and uh, hard work that did this. And I took a lot of risks. My ownership is a reward for my taking the risks. How do you respond to that person? Everything is a combination of risk and social contributions. If you take the greatest doctor in the world who earns several million dollars a year and you put him on a desert island, he's not going to have a very easy time even feeding himself, right? So that's what property systems should acknowledge. We don't want to take all the rewards that people get. Our system would take about two-thirds of the value of private property and make that common property, but leave about one-third on average for uh, people, and it would differ across different types of assets, but but it should be shared. But wait a minute. So when I sell my house, which is is worth this obscene amount of money, and I'm going to grant you it, it's obscene. I don't even get the I don't even get the profit. I mean, I have to sell it, and then I have to give two thirds of it to you guys. No, you would get you would get the full value, but every year you would pay something like a seven percent tax on it, and that tax would share the value of the property over time with the public. And this is a market mechanism, right? Absolutely. But in it's fact, a, it, it shows that we don't have markets at present. Think mm-hmm. of all the things that you can't compete for. You know, everyone talks about the stock market. Everyone thinks we live in a free market society. That's what you, your discussion was premised on. Right. But most things, there's no price on them. There's no way that you could contest for so controls I'm, on them if you're a startup. Glenn, I'm assuming there are limits to this system, right? So there, you know, my son... <laughs> lovely son, (laughs) is not going to be auctioned (laughs) off periodically. Um, And so there's got to be some background system of rights. Wait a minute. What about Deborah's parental rights? Can she she auction off her parental rights to her son? So uh, Deborah has a wonderful book that I really suggest to her readers about some of the limits of markets. And it's a book that had a big influence on me. But I I don't want to challenge any of those limits at all. Uh, I mean, we, we could talk about that, and maybe in a future society it could be interesting to talk about where the limits of markets are. But anything that we don't currently sell, I wouldn't want to have be sold. I just want things to be sold on fairer terms. Mm-hmm. Things that we already have in the market, I want them not to be monopolized. What about patents and copyrights? You wrote this book, right? Uh, it's a wonderful book. Suppose I wanted to buy the right to exploit your ideas, right? And, and do you have to put a price on the on your on your copyright uh, of this book? So, so there are, there are two aspects of intellectual property that are distinguished in the law right now. There's something that's called the author's moral rights, and there's the uh, property rights in the intellectual property. Right. The the intellectual property rights I think should be up for auction, but actually you can't sell the author's moral interest because it's part of your name. So you, you have the right to stop people from doing defamatory or uh, inappropriate things with your work, regardless of whether you own the copyright on it. But the copyright, in terms of its commercial value, I think you should ha- be able to, and, and it should be under the system of auction. I heard you say, because I, I was trying to get at what's, you know, I'm a philosopher, not an economist, and I don't even play one on the radio. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. I heard you say something that got me wondering, what, what's actually beneath this? Because you said something like you want people to have the attitude toward things, something like many things. I don't know if you mean all things that we have to like a spot on the beach, right? We occupy a spot on the beach. We don't. We don't. We don't have any 
ownership of the spot on the beach. We occupy it for a time. We move on. Others take it. Same thing with your house. Same thing with this factory. I mean, it's something, if somebody else can make a better use of it, then you shouldn't be so attached to it, right? And I was like, what kind of fundamental philosophy is underneath that? It seemed to, it seemed to me like some combination of utilitarianism and Buddhism or something, like some weird amalgam. Is that right or wrong or on the right track or on the wrong track? Well, well, I, I think Eric, my co-author, is a bit of a utilitarian. I wouldn't call myself that. I think my fundamental views, though I don't express them in the book, are something more like I believe in some notion of progress or evolution of civilization or something like that, in, in t growth of intelligence and order. Um, so that's, I think, my fundamental belief. So but let they me, don't, they're not really reflected in the book. So let me push a little bit more on the value side because, I mean, one thing you might think is really important in progress is um, getting people to be more altruistic, to identify with other people, to identify with the common good. But the market you know, like mechanism, you know, brings about results without anybody really having to do that. So I'm wondering in your kind of view where, you know, things like cooperation and altruism fit in. Um, if I'm, you know, putting up my house and then I'm auctioning it off, the people who are buying it may, you know, maybe they want to burn the house. I mean, and they're, you know, yeah. they have weird uh, desires. Maybe, yeah, they want right? to convert our neighborhood to factories. They want to, uh, to convert our neighborhood to open uh, open space or something like that. Well, I think that um, that's a great question. I think it's a, one of the central things we're concerned with in the book. And um, I, I actually think that the ways in which markets have encouraged selfishness could really be powerfully addressed by this system because mm -hmm. think about the beach example or think about um, all the property that my neighbors have. Right now, I think in this very selfish way, I own this, you own that. I don't care what happens to your stuff. I care what happens to my stuff. That's what capitalism encourages. Right. In this system, because I have access to everything and because I receive a social dividend that's based on everything, the difference between myself and the things that belong to me and other people gradually starts to break down. And that could potentially, as you were suggesting, Deborah, lead the way from our present society maybe to a very different form of organization as people's values through this system are led so, through market mechanisms. So that's a conjecture about how the, and, and I agree, I, you know, one of the things I loved about the book is it's thinking about institutions and how we could design, really think outside the box about designing new kinds of institutions. But there's a worry that if you change the institutions, but you don't, I mean, maybe they'll have this effect on people's motivations, but suppose they don't. Supposing that, um, you know, very selfish people are uh, bu buying and selling these things, and uh, they're just out to kind of, uh, maybe they're just out to maximize their own share on the, but they're not thinking about like, what's really good for all of us? Yeah, there's a wonderful line from Rousseau that says that he, you know, takes uh, uh, laws as they might be and men as right. they are. And I think that that's the approach we try to take in this book. On the one hand, we try to design institutions that will improve people morally. But on the other hand, we don't assume that people will change from their present yeah. form and rely upon that in the way that, say, communism and, and other social schemes did. And um, that's really the core of what we're trying to achieve I, here. I see. I see. That makes it so, see, you, the conjecture that you and Deborah just 
uh, talking about. That's sort of what made me think there's some kind of combination of uh, Buddhism and utilitarianism <laughs> in here. But I, 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 I get that. I get I get the thing about laws as they might be and and, and humans as they are. But I want to ask you a, a, another. I want to imagine a scenario because again I'm thinking about where I live and this this stuff is hotly this kind of issue is hotly debated. I believe that land on the in the Bay Area is is not well allocated. Right, it's allocated to <laughs> lots and lots and lots of single-family housing, and it's really, really, really expensive, and it's getting more and more expensive. Now there are the developers; they want to take the land and reallocate it to much more dense housing. There's the city councils who answer to the citizens who want to resist that. There are the the, the locked out who would buy all that uh, more dense housing and have more housing. So, but it sounds to me like this is a. It sounds to me like you're actually the developers. This going back to this selfish thing, the developers would say yes, yes, yes to you because I'm going to buy up all this housing. I'm going to put it to an economically more efficient use, but the the people who vote these city councils that resist and resist they're thinking you're going to take away my community and the poor people who the poorer people who are locked out are say give me entry into this community and it seems really complicated i don't see how you could get a universal buy in because of all the different stakeholders in all their different places well look you, i don't want to start with housing housing is a ambitious long term goal I want to know more about how the system works. I, I, I want to start with more modest things, and that's what we're doing. We're talking to the FCC about using this for managing the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We're talking to the UK government about using it to manage oil drilling rights and landing slots at Heathrow and things of this sort. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking at this in uh, blockchain yeah. communities, Ethereum. That, that's really what we're, we're thinking about in the near term. Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, I mean, you're a real world guy. I'm, a, I'm a, in the <laughs> I still want to think about whether this could be a total solution because I think this thing about housing in places like this is where one place where the, I understand auctioning off the spectrum and all that, but one place where the rubber really meets the road is when you get these real live forces arrayed in the way that they are right and I, I know you think it's an ambitious thing but I wonder if you think there's it there's reasonable hope that you know there I, I, could I do be think by, so yeah. I, I do think so look the the most powerful rhetoric that the wealthy use to defend their privilege is the free market as your debate earlier was already uh -huh. illustrating and um, that's what we break down in this book we really show that free markets truly understood and fully implemented are a powerful force to break down entrenched privilege rather than the other way around. And so that, that I think, is really what makes this mm -hmm. possible, is it changes the whole discourse. Rather than trying to sidestep markets, it reclaims them. So, Dylan, can I go back to one thing? So I, 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 I like, I, as I said, I really love the book, and I think there's so much that's fascinating in it. I want to go back to the issue I raised when I was arguing with Ken at the very beginning in our set piece about labor unions, because there's a very you know anti-monopoly thrust to the book. But of course, labor unions are, are monopolies, and some of the restrictions on labor unions in today's current world, um, restrictions that I think are, are not... Um, not well supported are antitrust types of um, restrictions. So 
the ban on secondary uh, the ban on secondary strikes or sympathy strikes is a kind of anti-monopoly. So what's your view about unions? And do you have two views, like a transitional view for the world we live in and a view for your ideal? Briefly, Glenn. Yeah, so I mean, the book is very pro-union. In fact, there's one chapter that's all about building a new type of union for data For data suppliers. workers, yeah. But, but, but yes, you're right, Deborah. that um, fundamentally this book is what I would call a liberal book or a, a radically liberal book. It believes that the fundamental goal is to break up concentrations of power. But as our founders recognized, sometimes you need concentrated power to combat concentrated power. That's not the ideal. The ideal is that you just break up those concentrations of power. But where they are inevitable because of economies of scale or things having to do with government, you need things to check those concentrations mm -hmm. of power. And unions can play that role in industries where there's that concentrated power. So this is fascinating stuff, and we'll, we'll take uh, talk deeper into it after a break. But you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're exploring the topic of markets, radical markets, and capitalism with Glenn Weil, co-author of the fascinating book, Radical Markets. Can expanding the market into voting make democracy work better? Could it help us overcome the deadlock and power um, from political elites that threaten and cripple our current system? Markets, voting, and political power when Philosophy Talk continues. Shopping without ever really owning anything. Now, that's a radical market for you. I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and our guest is Glenn Weil. He's the co-author of Radical Markets, A Brooding Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. So, Glenn, there's another part of your book that we have. I mean, there's so many ideas in your book, and we can't possibly do it justice. But one of the things, and, and there's another part of your book that shows that you really are a fan of markets, because you, you've been arguing that we could make politics more responsive by introducing, I don't know if you can call it a market, but market-like mechanisms into the voting processes. Can you tell me a little bit about how you think that's going to work, this thing you call quadratic voting? Well, I think a huge problem we have right now is that minorities in our democracy can't really defend themselves. They rely on judges to stand up for their rights and interests. And that leads to a lot of concentration of power. So we want to change that. We want to give every citizen the ability to weigh in even more strongly on the issues that are most important to her uh, and defend her most crucial interests. And we do that through a system called quadratic voting where everyone has a number of credits that they can spend across different issues. But to stop extremists from having disproportionate influence, if you put a lot of votes on one issue, it becomes increasingly expensive to get another vote on that issue, according to a particular mathematical formula, which is the basis of the idea. So, Glenn, I want to go back to what I um, the point I was pushing um, in discussion with you earlier about motivation, self-interest versus altruism, because isn't part of the problem with our voting system that people just you know vote their own preferences, their own individual preferences, as if it, they were buying things. 
Whereas really what we want is for us to deliberate together about what the right thing is to do. So how, how is your system, if, if, if you let me express my stronger preference for something, how are you going to assure that I'm taking other people into account? So we could assume that everyone's going to, when they vote, act in the common interest. And there is endless philosophical writing that seems to take this assumption uh, in a way that I think is quite naive. Mm -hmm. let's, not, let's not assume that. Let's allow for that. Let's have a system which, if people do that, uh, and we can encourage people to do that, it will lead to better outcomes. But that also allows that if people have deep disagreements, if there are African Americans who are systematically oppressed, if there are women who are not, whose needs are not perceived by men, that they're able to express that, so that wait, wait, depth. You've got um, like, the, that's a nice story, but what about like the racists who feel like, you know, integration is happening against their very strong preferences or, um, you know, the, the, so, the, or the people. Single, the single issue voters who could, who, who, for example, who could just spend all their votes on the single issue, right? And then they uh, have. Except they'd get far less influence if they did that. So the quadratic formula has the property that if you had a hundred credits, let's say, okay. and there are ten issues. If you put all your votes on one issue, you'd only get ten votes on that issue. If you spread it out evenly across the issues, you could get about four votes on all the issues. I get you. So you get far more influence if you're willing to spread it out more equally. But you but know, if coming I'm, to your but point, if, that, but if I'm yeah. a single, wait a minute though. But if I'm a single issue voter, that's a rational, that's a reasonable payoff, right? And I get to distort. Uh, the I get to I get to spend so much credit on that single issue, which disproportionately matters to me and matters less to other people. Well, right? and, so, and, and and if that's really true, then that's fine. But I don't think that's very likely to be true in practice. And we've run a survey using quadratic voting, and we had out of six thousand people we ran on it, only one person who put all their credits on a single issue. Yeah. Uh, okay. And you were you were going to respond to Deborah before I cut you well, off? I was just going to say, look, the truth is. That yeah, there are there are a few people who the overwhelming most important thing in their life is the racial superiority of white people. I think that's a very 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 tiny part of the population, and uh, in fact, in the you know the surveys that we've done, you get you get almost no one expressing uh, views like that. But because oh, they know um, they're not supposed but, to. Well, well, possibly, but I mean, they they in Charlottesville they didn't seem to be so deterred by that. So. The, I think the truth is, and in fact, we've got in this survey people being much more honest about various things. So if you uh, think about um, women's pay equality, very progressive men will say, I strongly support that. But when you put them on a budget constraint, their pre preferences change. And they and women continue to stand up strongly for that, and men retreat quite a bit so, on that. Glenn, uh, I you know I'm I, I think there are you know there are a lot of different voting schemes that people have proposed which probably all in some way might be improvements on the status quo. But I, I actually think there's a core problem, which has to do with the motivation that people actually have um, and that we don't um, have a lot of role. I agree with you. We can't assume that people are, care about the common good. Many people don't. But the question is, how do we build institutional structures and how do we, you know, uh, promote certain kinds of norms to get people caring about the other person? 
And I well, didn't see anything in your in this that that uh, at least on that dimension, you know, to, marks to me, an improvement. To me, I think it's deeply unrealistic to imagine that everyone will think about the full common good on every issue, just as in private spheres, we allow people to specialize and have pride in a career where they know more about some things than about others. So too in collective decision making. Um, I do think we should embrace the fact that some people are experts on some things and not in others. For You take me, for example. I, I consider myself something of an expert on economic policy and transformative ideas and so forth. But I don't even know who runs for local offices in my area. And many of my townspeople would be much better at representing the collective good in that area. And I think that you know people give charities in some things. People are passionate about certain so things. You would we allow people to express things. So can you trade votes okay. in your system? So can I trade uh, my, some of my credits to you? So when it comes to economic policy, suppose I really care about the local stuff, right? I, want, I got my credits, but you can give me some of yours because you don't care as much. You're not informed. And I can give some to you because you're going to do the economic voting on behalf of both of well, us. Well, th through the system, you effectively do that, though not at, you're not allowed to outside of the system because you would have the same set of credits eventually that you would use on the local issues, on the, you know, on the national issues. And by choosing to use your credits in one place, you'd be expressing that greater strength of yeah. But I can't. I can't ally with you to say you're no. going to be like my proxy for this issue. No, because, well, may, maybe eventually. So there's an idea called liquid democracy where you can actually delegate votes. But this system, but that tends to lead to a lot of concentration of power in right. people with much authority. But this system would naturally deter that because you have this decreasing value of your vote as it goes on. So the more concentrated, the more deterrence there is. Of right. That so we've got a question from an emailer or a caller whose phones aren't working correctly. Um, Luis in San Francisco says, most of the discussion centers around a centralized way of thinking as if one person can come up with a system that works as opposed to an organic bottom-up way of finding solutions to the problem. I don't know. Would you agree with that, I, that you're that you're not thinking of this as a kind of bottom-up, uh, chaotic system finding its equilibrium, you know? Well, I, I think we need to have ideas that help people, help inspire those bottom-up processes. I think it's a back and forth between them. And uh, actually, you know, I've come to feel when I talk about these ideas that they really belong to young people, not to me. Because well, they you're a pretty young guy. Much yeah. easier. <laughs> you're a pretty young guy. <laughs> when, when I talk to when I talk to students, uh, you know, when I, when I talk to older people, usually they struggle with how radical the ideas are. Many students aren't even familiar with our present system, so they they're not you're not <laughs> devoted to it. They're blank you know? slates. And, and 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 so when when I present these ideas to them they're able to see deeper into them both the benefits and the flaws and the ways to improve much better than I am. So, so I'm a little I, worried really about this idea. So, Glenn, I'm a little worried about this idea of some people specializing and, like, you know, caring about the local community while other people don't. Or some people, you know, if you're thinking about, like, making laws – it's really important that everybody get a chance to, uh, you know, weigh I in. Don't know. On. I'm not sure because I think I think uh, Glenn is. I think it's like 
the one person one vote assumes that you have equal stake and equal interest and equal knowledge in all areas in which you might be asked to vote and your system is allowing us to say I don't know enough about that but well, Deborah, I there's a huge amount of interest I mean uh, of evidence uh, there's a wonderful book called uh, Affluence and Influence by Martin Gillens yeah, yeah, I know which book. is all about right. the fact that um, there's something called issue what he calls issue publics people mm-hmm. who within every social class or group um, are knowledgeable and interested and focused on particular issues. And I think that those people often get sort of washed out by the noise of people who have the same interests and might have the same opinion of them, but just don't know as much about the so issue. I, I, yes, I, I, I agree with that. But I also think there are uneducated, un, uh, people who don't have knowledge on and issues. And passion. They and have, have passion right. and strong interests and organize, so right. like around, uh, you know, some of the climate right. deniers. So you're not, uh, your system doesn't align passion and knowledge. It doesn't guarantee that passion and knowledge will be aligned. Yeah, you're just doing the strength of people's preferences, not the content. It's, you know, I, mean, it's, I, th- I think ultimately, if, if we have a democratic spirit, if we believe in a system where the people are going to speak rather than there's going to be some uh, authority that will determine who's knowledgeable and who's not, and we're going to allow for people to express some sense of knowledge, it has to be done through people expressing it themselves in some way of making trade-offs. And I think that there's lots of empirical evidence that strongly suggests, in fact, that there's a very strong correlation between knowledge and people's passion on issues. There's, oh, there's I a don't huge know. amount. There's a huge, there's, no, there's a huge amount of political evidence. But, but the thing is, it's not fundamentally about that evidence. It's yeah. about a commitment to the principle of democracy, which is to say that you and I and us who are, quote, experts, shouldn't be the ones who determine who has knowledge and who doesn't, so, that it should be through some democratic process. Glenn, Glenn, I, uh, this is a great discussion. We've only scratched the surface of your of the ideas in your book, but I, I got to say goodbye to you. Uh, it's been a radical conversation. For me, too. So thank you, Glenn. Our guest has been Glenn Weil. He's a researcher at Microsoft and a visiting senior scholar in economics at Yale and the co-author of the fascinating book, Radical Markets, A Brooding Capitalism and Democracy for a New Society. So Ken, what do you think now? I think we got to get into Ian's show. I mean, this is really complicated stuff. And, uh, you know, it's it's really complicated stuff. But it's radical and thought-provoking. But the conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is cogito ergo blago. Sorry, Descartes. I think, therefore, I blog. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed on today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions or comments to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we might just feature it on the blog. You can also become a partner in the community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. And now, here's someone with a monopoly on verbal speed. It's Ian Scholes, the 62nd Philosopher. Ian Schultz, I saw a picture of an ATM that allows you to buy or sell Bitcoin. So you can spend money on money that is also collectible, kind of like Confederate money, only you can spend it too. But why would you? Also, you can make your own Bitcoin by mining that is generating a kajillion algorithms to get the right one, which used to be achieved by one hacker in his basement, but now involves limited partnerships with vast warehouses full of computers. The equivalent of a steam engine the size of a house pushing a bicycle backwards across the street. Economists are quite excited about it. By and large, the new economy is not based on actual products. The main thing is debt, projections, slivers, hedging. I just read that the head of AT&T met with the head of HBO to tell him he's doing a good job, but he needs to do a whole lot better. Now that HBO is part of a mega-global corporation, which it was before, remember? AOL, Time Life Warner? Man, never mind. The amount of subscribers HBO now has is not going to cut it. According to the New York Times, HBO will have to find a way, quote, to move beyond 35 to 40% penetration to have this become a much more common product, unquote. 
having upwards of a hundred million people shell out money every month to watch you. In what world is that a losing proposition? Well, this one, I guess. In the same super corporate vein, I read that Disney is feeling the pain around the movie Solo, which has only made $210 million, making it and Return of the Jedi the lowest earners in the franchise, defeating expectations and causing bean counters to rethink the whole Star Wars thing. Heads roll when things make money, but not as much money as hoped. That's one aspect of capitalism. And there's the things not making money right now, but just wait, which is Amazon, the driverless car, the Trump presidency. It gives one pause. It's crazy. Certain Americans still claim that capitalism is the greatest thing since sliced bread. That doesn't make sense, since sliced bread is an artifact of capitalism. A great thing for sure, but sliced bread also meant less work for bread cutters. And there's your damn exploitation right there. Before you know it, robots are baking bread, slicing it, even as your doctor is telling you to cut down on bread consumption. Excuse me, your robot doctor. So now we have 500 different kinds of bread, two-thirds gluten-free. used to be that this would be monitored by the FDA, but now, thanks to the Internet, we're gluten-free because somebody posted a thing on Facebook. Once again, a fear we did not know we had is thwarted. Remember, though, after fire and the wheel, it's all been pretty much icing on the cake, product-wise. Capitalism exists to expand the horizons of cake, and what kind of person gets to eat it? You imagine yourself as the kind of person who eats gluten-free chocolate cake before you know it? By golly, you have another niche market. That's why capitalism likes tech so much. It moves fast and burns up quickly. ka -ching. Now investors are excited to buy super tall skyscrapers. Not cheap housing to help solve the housing crisis? No, the market says we need to build skyscraper penthouses for billionaires. A buyer just paid $32 million for a penthouse on the 94th floor at 432 Park Avenue in New York, the third tallest building in the U.S. Great view? Well, I doubt it. A building that tall crowds out light in every direction would build near it. Also, according to Wikipedia, the ideal buyer is a member of the global elite who collects residences. Doesn't really live there. So what's the point? Maybe he'll Airbnb it. But who would want to stay that high up? I'd be scared of earthquakes, thunderstorms, high wind. Plus, it takes a month to get to the lobby. All things seems as stupid as driverless cars. Once they work, who's going to buy them? Much easier to have them come when you call, which means fewer cars, like a taxi or a bus. Driverless cars will become part of the infrastructure, and the marketplace does not give hoot one about infrastructure, unless it can talk with a sexy robot voice and knows how to slice bread. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, Local Public Radio, San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Carola Kreitmeier, Angela Johnston, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners in our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed on the program don't necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or any of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Deborah Satz. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. If you nail together two things that have never been nailed together before, some schmuck will buy it from you. Huh? <laughs> yeah, give me a dollar and a half for that. <laughs>